Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Spelling the word magic with a K isn't just a matter of affectation. To witches and magical practitioners, the difference distinguishes stage tricks from the harnessing of energy for the purposes of changing our environment. And while spelling magic with a K has a long, long history, likely due to the fact that manuscript copyists were being paid by the letter, it was Alistair Crowley who formalised its use. The innocuous spelling of one word isn't the subject of this episode, though, but it does illustrate an important point right out of the gate that all aspects of modern magic, from the spelling of words, to the reciting of spells, to the supposedly centuries-old use of ceremonial rites, initiations, and instruments, is a world of orthodoxy unto itself. And it's the subversion of that orthodoxy that we're talking about today. I'm Jericho Mandiba, and this is Beyond Belief. Magic is by and large a world of systems, of sects, of schools of thought, many of which take years of study, practice and access to unlock. And rightly so. The occult, in whatever form it takes, should be protected. And secrecy is one of its most sacrosanct principles. But from my perspective, it's hard not to view magic's love of rules and tradition as a direct runoff of its history. A history largely informed, if not dictated by, turn-of-the-century orders and secret societies made up of wealthy white men. Orders and societies who sought, implicitly or otherwise, to consolidate magical knowledge. Because knowledge is power. These were men attempting to outdo each other with their reported ancient discoveries, their ways of conducting special rituals, and their influence over magic as we know it. And influence it, they did. You cannot enter any magical space online today, whether it's a Reddit forum or the comments under a TikTok video, without seeing people argue about the correct way of worshipping or doing rituals and spells, or even believing itself. Even the most subversive of magical belief systems, chaos magic, has its own limitations and its own set of do's and don'ts. Which brings me to what my guest today calls anarchic magic a system he came up with that's not a system, like 
at all. And it's not a way of dismissing any other beliefs or practices either. Rather, it's a way of saying, do whatever works. And that means that there are no barriers to what can and cannot be considered magical practice and no one way to do anything. Think of it as purposeful heterodoxy, says Michorowitz, a worldview in which you can question and overturn every assumption in favor of whatever spiritual method provides you with inspiration and more importantly, with results. But what does it really mean to create your own self-determined system of magic? Like, how do you do it? Are there risks? What if you like being told what to do? Well, keep listening because this is everything you need to know about anarchic magic. It's punk rock, it's DIY, it's a proverbial rip of the rule book, and it's not defined, not even by name, by anyone except you. My guest today, Mitch Horowitz, is a historian of alternative spirituality and one of today's most literate voices of esoterica, mysticism, and the occult. He's the 2020 Writer-in-Residence at the New York Public Library, Lecturer-in-Residence at the Philosophical Research Society in Los Angeles, and the Penn Award-winning author of books including Occult America, One Simple Idea, How Positive Thinking Reshaped Modern Life, The Miracle Club, and Secrets to Self-Mastery. Mitch has written for The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, Time, Politico, and many more. Mitch Horowitz. Hi, thank you so much for being on Beyond Belief. Great to be here. Thank you. You're welcome. So, okay, we're going to be talking about anarchic magic today. I feel like there's so many layers we kind of need to unpack. So maybe let's just start with magic as a concept. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, you know, for people that aren't really in the know, what is magic to you personally? Sure. I mean, of course, there are two kinds of magic. Colloquially, we might speak of stage magic or mentalism, which are professional tricks, often performed with great aplomb and great skill. But we're, of course, talking about a different kind of magic, ritual magic, sometimes spelled with a K to differentiate it from stage magic. And we're talking about magic that's in the form of ritual, spell, ceremony that is meant to heighten the individual's causative powers. I think that's what we're all after, those of us who study ceremonial magic, the occult, various forms of new thought or mind metaphysics. We're looking for methods that we can use to heighten our own causative abilities. And magic is one avenue, one form of methodology that usually involves uh, spell work, ritual, ceremony. Mm. How do you think, you know, that heightening of our causal abilities is distinguished from what people might think of when they think of magic with a K if they haven't really looked into it very deeply? Well, it's interesting. You know, I think all practical spirituality, all spirituality that holds to the principle that we belong to some larger extra physical form of life and that we can employ those forces for therapeutic purposes. We can employ those forces for creative purposes. We're all really circling around the same basic idea, which is that thoughts are causative. We may have different notions as to why that is so. I have my own principles and ideas, which I explore in the Miracle Club. We think in terms of the mind sometimes as being a conduit for unseen laws, or as I write about, the mind is quite possibly bound up with some kind of quantum selection or perspective. I tend to use the word selection 
rather than the word manifest. But whatever one's point of view, and none of us know for sure, I mean, these are all very highly metaphorical concepts. Whatever one's point of view, I think everybody who's on the path of practical spirituality, from new thought to sex magic, is basically engaged in trying to heighten these psychical or unseen forces that we search for in practical ways. Mm, Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. So anarchic magic, I know that that's a term you've coined, and I want to know on the top level, how does that differentiate from more traditional forms of magic with a K? Yes. Traditional forms of magic, particularly ceremonial magic, as was pioneered by Aleister Crowley and others, as was pioneered by the magical order, the Golden Dawn, ceremonial magic tends to involve very organized rituals. I mean, you'll see people, for example, who practice ceremonial magic, sometimes really reading off of a litanies off of a page, almost like it's a liturgical exercise that you might find in a church. I don't mean any of that negatively. I embrace ceremonial magic, and there are many people I collaborate with and love who are dedicated to ceremonial magic. Then you have other forms of magic that are looser, sometimes called chaos magic, which I also identify with and venerate. I suppose you could say anarchic magic is a cousin to both those practices, but the primary difference is it really completely and totally throws out the rule book and depends upon the individual to be entirely spontaneous. Absolutely nothing is off the table. Absolutely nothing is considered dogma, doctrine, the way things must be done. If you did a certain spell or if you approached something, a certain way on Monday. You don't have to approach it that way on Tuesday. There's a spontaneity involved. I suppose I spent many, many years of my life studying different ritualistic, esoteric systems, different liturgical systems. And I reached the point, just personally speaking, where I needed to expunge all that. I needed to throw all of that out. I'm a great Mm -hmm. lover of spell work. I'm a great lover of magic, rituals, ceremony, prayer of all forms. But in the same way that when I was much younger, I rejected congregational spirituality. Today, I suppose I also reject a spirituality or an occult practice that cleaves too closely to any handed down or prefigured attitude, ceremony, ritual. I want people to truly, truly be completely spontaneous. That doesn't mean that it's a path of laziness. In fact, to be spontaneous requires, I think, a tremendous background, a tremendous rigor in one's approach to the world. You know, if you look at artists that we regard as possessing or demonstrating some kind of spontaneity, whether it's a performance artist, whether it's a free-form dance or musical artist, or whether it's a painter like a Jackson Pollock or what have you. All these people led lives of tremendous training, but they did so to the point where they were then capable of throwing the rule book out. The martial artist Bruce Lee used to call his path the path of no path. You know, He learned mm-hmm. from all these different traditions and modalities, and then he essentially threw them away as guardrails, as rule books, and did his own thing, but did it magnificently. And that's what I'm trying to get at with anarchic magic. Mm. The limitations of kind of 
choosing or following one branch of, of magic may come up for people along their journeys if they are, say, drawn to something that's a bit more formal and, and rigorous and has ceremonies. And so things like, you know, ceremonial magic in general, Wicca, like practices like that, that are following a religious kind of format, I guess, if you could mm-hmm. say that. And the freedom of kind of getting rid of all that is... I can imagine very liberating what the, in my kind of limited understanding of chaos magic, I kind of understood it as being how you're describing anarchic magic. But then the more that you get into it, you realize there is kind of an inside baseball vocabulary. There are kind (laughs) of certain rules. There are certain practices. Whereas this really seems like you're saying that's just not, it's completely DIY. I think that's right. Uh, again, it's it's in some regards a cousin to chaos magic, but there are real substantial differences, and I think you just put your finger on them. Mm-hmm. Chaos magic implies by its name that we're all sort of dancing in the void, but as you put it, and I think put it very well, there is a kind of inside baseball language. There is a set of assumptions and guardrails and principles that you find fairly consistently and fairly rigorously repeated from individual to individual. For example, the primary practice of chaos magic is is sigil magic, where you transfer your desire onto an abstract symbol. You charge the symbol, so-called, by meditating over it and bringing yourself to some kind of ecstatic state, usually through sexual climax, and then you forget all about it. And the idea is that you've transferred your desire onto the symbol. You've charged the symbol, so to speak, in ecstasy. And that in itself allows whatever your wish is either to become transferred to the subconscious mind without rational blocks or to somehow be transferred to the subconscious, which then serves as a kind of medium for some sort of unseen forces. Some people have a spiritual outlook toward it. Some people have a more material outlook, but that's the basic principle. Now, I love sigil magic. I have used sigil magic many, many times, but I have to confess to you, I've never had success with it. And I've asked myself why. And I think the reason why is because my apparatus, my psyche is not built to forget my desire. It's simply not built that way. And rather than continually pushing up against that barrier, I asked myself, what if that's not a barrier at all? You know, there are all kinds of ways that we can heighten or approach a more fuller, more intense psychical state. If one individual is capable of performing a ritual and then forgetting all about his or her desires, I embrace that person and I dig that person. But that is not me. And I started to find that among magical practitioners of many different stripes, that was starting to become a kind of catechism, this notion Mm -hmm. that if you dwell on your desires, that in itself keeps you bound to the rational worldview. That in itself keeps you bound to the playing field of the material. It's a block and that the royal road to power is through this kind of blissful, purposeful forgetfulness. I honor that, but that doesn't fit everybody's lives. It doesn't fit my life. So for example, I experiment with something that I call the 10-day miracle challenge, which is a very simple, very expository exercise, which involves actually concentrating on your desires with fullness and with totality for 10 days 
marking off 10 boxes. It's very simple. I have an article about it online. I write about it in future books. And this simple exercise for me, which I'm experimenting with right now, and which a lot of people have found success with, myself included, has been helpful because it's, it's a different approach. It doesn't say don't do sigil magic, but it says you can do this too, which doesn't involve or bound you to any principle that you have to forget about your desire, but rather that focusing on your desire can also be a way of tapping into higher energies. So anarchic magic is really all about creating a quilt from different ideas and not being bound by any dogma or set of rules, including to the point where you can go back and forth among different dogmas and sets of rules if you feel like it. Mm, which is so much more inclusive. And going back to what you were talking about with Jackson Pollock and kind of the idea of spontaneity and, and magic and bringing these things into everyday life, does it kind of stand then that in, in the anarchic magic viewpoint, we are really all anarchic magicians already, whether we kind of believe yes. it or not? <laughs> yes, yes. I think that's probably very, very true. And we have to all watch out within ourselves, myself included, for this creeping catechism or dogma. You know, I think probably what got me onto the scent trail of feeling that I wanted something different than what was being offered in the contemporary magical culture is I, I started to notice maybe three or four years ago that people were within the alternative spiritual culture were very freely using, and I would say overusing, terms like inner and outer, higher and lower, essence and personality, attachment, non-attachment, identification, non-identification. And I thought to myself, these are all just terms that are metaphors for experience. And we arrive at some consensus meaning about them. And these things can become orthodoxy. They can become calcified very quickly. Show me the difference between inner and outer. Show me the difference between you know, personality and essence. A friend of mine used to joke that if we manifest something and we like it, we call that essence. And if we manifest something and we don't like it, we call that personality, you know, in terms of our behavior. Uh -huh. It's all one, one thing in my point of view. And that extends, I believe, to material possessions, to accomplishments, to achievements. Sometimes people are told, not infrequently in a scolding tone, you're too attached, you're too identified. Is that so? I don't know that that's true. I wouldn't call the hummingbird identified, you know, for wanting to suckle nectar. I wouldn't call the bee identified for wanting to gather pollen. That's what they do. That's entirely natural. It may be entirely natural for another individual to play the guitar or to start a business or to do a podcast as you're doing, you know, to ask that individual not to do that or not to be so-called attached could be just as unnatural and just as great a path to unhappiness as telling the, the, the bird not to flap its wings. It's what one does. So I, I want to examine all these concepts. We have to be really careful within the alternative spiritual culture of not recreating the orthodoxies that we came here to get away from. So just to kind of go back to what you were saying earlier about the idea of kind of having um, this grounding in more traditional or accepted ways of doing things before breaking out and forging your own more anarchic path. How does that sit with kind of the values of like anarchic magic in general? Like, are you kind of like, I understand that that's definitely your experience. Are you kind of saying that everybody should have some kind of foundational knowledge before they decide to go completely DIY and how they incorporate magic into their lives? 
That's a really good question. And frankly, I'm wrestling with that question myself right now. I'm inclined to say yes, because we're all inclined to want other people to do the things that we do. And that's Mm -hmm. one of the big problems in our world. Probably most of the violence in our world comes from the fact that we like to tell other people what to do. And it's interesting how you can get into a religious dialogue with somebody online, and you'll discover very, very quickly that they don't really want to be heard. They want to be obeyed. And I've had lots of people come to me and want to take issue with me about one form of my practice or another. And just a few beats into the conversation, it's very clear that they don't want to just say their piece and go away. (laughs) They want me to obey them. So I have to be very careful about not replicating that myself. I have studied a lot of different religious systems, both mainstream and alternative. I've spent years within some of these systems, and that has given me a hunger and, I hope, a background to participate in this more free-form spirituality that I'm talking about. And I suppose my comments have definitely leaned in the direction of the affirmative, Jackson Pollock being the perfect example that, you know, you need to know the rule of book before you can throw out the rule book. But I have to be really careful about that. I'm not sure. That's the way I've done it. If somebody else came along and had a different approach or a different way, I would measure their success by their degree of satisfaction with it. Mm, Yeah, I think that's a really good way of thinking about it. It's kind of also, I guess, largely dependent on what your beliefs really are. Like some people might say, you know, you have to learn the rules before you break them because there's an element of safety or like spiritual hygiene involved that's really important. But if if that's not part of your cosmology, then then it's not necessary. So it's a really personal question that I think may need a lot of exploration on like an individual level. It's super personal and it's super individualized, but I would observe this. I do think that, and I I would just say this to your listeners, friend to friend, seeker to seeker, I have made the observation that within the New Age culture, and I use New Age in a positive way, there is perhaps a degree of overestimation of one's abilities that gets promulgated through the overuse of terms like enlightened or realization or things like that. People are very quick to credit teachers with being enlightened. And there's partly a self-congratulation in that because if my teacher is enlightened, then I'm an apostle. Isn't that great? And I think that we have to be cognizant. We really have to be cognizant of how helpless we are in certain situations. I know lots of people, myself included, who if put into a situation that is drastically unfamiliar, like a blackout, for example, they do not hold it together very well. Or, you know, a flat tire or somebody deeply annoying them or a profound inconvenience. And what I'm saying can sound simple, but it's really quite heavy. If one looks at oneself in situations where you have to veer just a little bit outside the comfort zone, most times you will not like what you see. And I would say grapple with that before using terms like enlightened or realization or even consciousness, because we are a mess outside of our comfort zone. So I I think part of the reason for training is not credential, but part of the reason for training is to come face to face with how thin uh, we really are as human beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting to think of in, in um, reference to what you were saying about 
desire and our kind of natural, you know, instincts earlier as well, because on on one hand you have that that should be embraced from one perspective. And, but then you also have, like you're saying, these terms. And for me, I've noticed a lot around intuition. Like everybody wants to know, like, how can I listen to my intuition? How can I harness my intuition? As if we're all expected to just know. <laughs> and, <laughs> right, right. You, you know, it's like it's like a real um, stress for people that they don't feel like they're in touch with their intuition enough. And to feel like so confident in that kind of idea of an intuition and so trusting of that, that's great. But it's also like, it feels like it's so often built on sand if there's like a lack of self-awareness or even just nothing to fall back on in terms of like a kind of wider knowledge or framework to put that in. I agree. I agree. And sometimes, in fact, people speak in terms of intuition, but they might just need skills. The new age should not become a place of escape or refuge for people because they feel overburdened by the outer world and they just want to rely on intuition and going with the flow and so on. And sometimes, you know, frankly, maybe the individual needs something of a different tenor. Maybe the individual actually does need some of those very ordinary outward skills before moving on to more ultimate questions of life. And it's interesting, you know, the question of what intuition is and when it's available to us and what blocks us from it opens onto so many interesting things. I suppose in my own experience, I've observed that what blocks me from intuition is some counter desire. Like I meet somebody and I'm getting a little warning buzzer that this may not be the right person, but I think that this person may have something I want, and so I allow desire to overcome my intuition. That's one barrier I've observed in myself. We'll be right back with Mitch Horowitz to talk about the reception of these concepts in the mainstream, and you would be surprised. Plus, the imagination and spontaneity and how they are such a crucial part of a completely DIY magical practice, and what Courtney Love, Malcolm X, and the Situationist movement of the 60s have to do with the sacred experiences of anarchic magic. But first, a personal moment. So Mitch's description of anarchic magic has resonated with me from the first moment that I read it. I've been fascinated with magic and witchcraft my entire life, but I only started being open about it around five years ago. There was a slight fear of what it could mean for my career as an objective journalist and for my reputation among my more rational materialist family and friends. But there was something else too, call it imposter syndrome. Because ever since I was a kid, every book or website I explored about practicing magic, and there were a lot of them, left me somewhat unsatisfied. I would always learn a lot and I would always deepen my appreciation for all beliefs and all practices, but I never really felt at home. I situated myself in the eclectic witch camp and left it at that. And I didn't really have the language to describe how the most powerful magical moments of my life had come about through unplanned waves of emotion. Not really spells, not worship, not rituals, something else. Something that felt bigger and something a lot less prescriptive. If that resonates with you, stick around because we're going to get deep into it. Are you afraid to colour your hair at home? I had a little trepidation too, after being burned one too many times in high school, quite literally, but instead of going to the salon, I've started using Madison Reed's at-home hair colour kits for a fraction of the price. 
And their kits are infused with ingredients that actually nourish your hair. Stuff like argan oil, keratin, and ginseng root extract to give you super shiny, healthy looking hair color. And of course, it's also highly convenient. They deliver it right to your door. So on your own schedule, you can do it yourself in under an hour. So get ammonia-free, multi-dimensional hair color delivered to your door starting from $22 at madison-reed.com and use my promo code BEYONDBELIEF and you'll get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit. My promo code again is BEYONDBELIEF. Visit madison-reed.com to find your perfect shade. That's madison-reed.com. Now back to Mitch. Knowing what you know about the mainstream and how these ideas kind of, you know, do in some ways or just completely don't resonate, how do you feel about talking about a concept like anarchic magic, which is like built so much on personal experience? And how do you think that it's received? What does the middle American like skeptic need to know about these things in a way that would be beneficial for them in their lives. Well, one of the things I'm proud of in my work is that I never change my message or my tone regardless of who I'm addressing. So if I'm on a late night radio show like Coast to Coast AM or if I'm at a more straight-laced uh, school or something in the Midwest or if I'm speaking at an academic conference or if I'm uh, giving an interview to a mainstream place like an NPR or something, I never alter my message or my tone. And I'm proud of that because I don't want to be segmenting myself by audience. I have been really surprised where there's receptivity and where's the, where there's not. You know, probably my first mainstream articles, if I can put it that way, appeared, believe it or not, on the opinion page of the Wall Street Journal for the simple reason that the journal, unlike other mainstream papers, including the Washington Post and the New York Times, who I've also written for, they have a regular weekly religion column. And once in a while, somebody over there says, well, let's hear from the New Agers. Let's hear from the magical crowd. And they demonstrate the capacity to say, well, you know, certainly there's some of these people we can dialogue with. And so <laughs> they opened the first door to me, you know, in terms of mainstream communication. You know, it wasn't NPR. It wasn't, you know, the more liberal precincts of the mainstream media. It was the Wall Street Journal because they had a religion column, which I applaud. That religion column usually does not dwell on magical topics, but once in a while it does, and and they you know invite me to the table, and that's fine. You know the other papers don't need to, but I guess all I'm really trying to say is that it's always a surprise to me where there's openness, where there's receptivity, where there's a, an honoring of the search. Yeah, so. I want to dive into like how anarchic magic looks a little more and what people might kind of, you know, who are hearing about this for the first time might think or subconsciously think anyway. So Unitarian Universalist, for example, um, in Australia where I'm from, like their numbers are, are dwindling to basically to extinction. One of the theories is that I mean, there's a lot of variables, but one is that as a religion, it's liberal to the point where it takes a lot of like self-motivation and inquiry and imagination and all these things because, you know, you're largely not told what to do. And so it's hard to get people, you know, to church every Sunday if they know that there's no repercussions for not going. 
And so I just kind of think of that in terms of anarchic magic and how much it, it actually requires of the individual in terms of, you know, mindset work and imagination, like having the desire to really experiment and remain fluid and, and so on. Um, so what does it take to kind of create your own anarchic magic practice and have it really work? Well, I'll, I'll give you some examples because probably an example is, is the best way in. <laughs> it's funny. Some months ago, I was in the New York Public Library, the main branch of the New York Public Library, and I work in a research room there. And on the ceiling of the rotunda of the New York Public Library is a painting of Prometheus, the mythical figure who stole fire from the gods and brought it to enlighten humanity. Prometheus is not much different from Eve in scripture or from the serpent in Genesis 3. And Prometheus has a kind of satanic Luciferian appeal, this fiery figure who stole knowledge from the higher beings, enlightened the lower beings. He's a figure of great rebellion and emancipation, which is also how I see Eve. And I do practice prayer. And I was a petitionary prayer specifically. And I was standing underneath the rotunda and um, I was saying a prayer to Prometheus, and I was also touching the brass base of a lampstand that had a claw on it, which I really identified with. And after I was finished, a woman came up to me and introduced herself, and she said, do you remember me? We used to date in college. And I did remember her, of course. And then she said, you know, I didn't want to come up to you because you looked like you were praying. And I said, well, I was praying, you know. But, you know, that's a perfect example of anarchic magic. Uh, now, I tend to be unembarrassed about these things. I'm not saying you have to disclose to your college boyfriend or girlfriend that you're worshiping Prometheus. It's entirely optional. But that was just something I was moved to do at that particular moment. Another time, this was years ago. I write about this in an article online. I climbed to the top of a tower that's on the banks of the Charles River outside of Waltham, Massachusetts. It's called Norumbega Tower. It was built in the late, late 19th century as a marker to what was supposedly a Viking settlement that Leif Erikson had created on the banks of the Charles. I don't know whether that's widely accepted historically, but it's certainly a theory, and this tower was intended to mark this Viking settlement. And I went to the top of this tower, and it was before my writing career had really kicked in, and I just vowed, I vowed with everything in me that I was going to write, that I was going to write successfully, that I was going to have an audience, that I was going to have a constituency. And I had this completely unified experience within, without, intellectual, physical Everything seemed to dissolve. It was a kind of transcendent moment. And everything happened for me after that moment. It seemed something powerful had been released. You can't always plan for these things. If I had planned it out and said, well, Thursday, I'm going to break into Norm Bagan Tower. I didn't really break in, although it is locked. I was able to shimmy inside. I'm going <clears> to <throat> go inside Norm Bagan Tower. I'm going to climb it. I'm going to pray. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I find that for me personally, if I plan out a ritual... I don't know whether I'm going to bring it or not. I don't know whether the passion is going to be there or not. I don't know whether the drive is going to be there or not. So part of anarchic magic is, yeah, you might have an idea of something you want to do, or you might have no idea, but I want you to act when the mo moment strikes. Every artist can tell you that he or she needs to have their tools at the ready, whatever they do, whether they're a sound artist or a painter or recording artist, whatever they do, because if you wait six hours, it's going to be gone. And the same is true spiritually. The same is true spiritually. Likewise, 
you can't plan to write a beautiful noise composition at four o'clock on Thursday. It might happen or it might happen at three in the morning. And mm -hmm. I believe spirituality is a lot like that. Mm -hmm. I can't bring it according to the calendar. I can only bring yeah. it according to spontaneity. Yeah, that's so interesting. I think like there's something to the power of a spontaneous rupture of some kind versus like a planned thing. It kind of reminds like a totally different world, but the the political movement situationists, you know, like they would stage political protests in like a very spontaneous way. And the idea was to, you know, punctuate or break through the the spectacle, the, the symbolic order, the drudgery of whatever life generally <laughs> looks like. And that moment then is, you know, something else, something more transcendent. Yes, I totally and, dig that, which is why I use the term anarchic. You know, I'm, I'm trying mm -hmm. to get it just that. Yeah. And I love the idea of kind of just naturally following your passion wherever it may lead. Like um, when I was like, I'm thinking kind of about Prometheus and like deity worship and what that could look like now. When I was in school, I was obsessed with Courtney Love. You know, that was like my my idol. I like had posters. I loved the band Hole. And I was just like, oh, Courtney Love. I feel like, you know, retrospectively from anarchic magic perspective like that was kind of like a, a form of deity worship or like I was kind of channeling like my passion and what I wanted and my my future and my identity were all being like formed in this moment that from the perspective that we're speaking from really was something extraordinary yes yes and it's just cool to think of like what it could look like and how it might be so far from what people expect Yes. And I really think that what you've just described is completely valid. I think it's valid because it's powerful. It's valid because it leads to a satisfying outcome. And I think it's also got historical integrity. You know, what did our ancient ancestors do? What did our primeval ancestors do across all continents, but personify energies into deities. So they might call them Minerva, they might call them Set, they might call them Jupiter, they might call them any number of terms. There are you know, terms you'll find from West and Central Africa, from Polynesia, from Eastern Europe, from Western Europe, so on, all over the world. And is what you described entirely different from that? If you feel that a deity or a, a persona, a work of art, even a movie, you know, contains something in it that summons and heightens your energies, I think that is a powerful spiritual experience. If one understands the term spiritual as just meaning extra physical. Yeah. And it also just, for me, hearing all this, it just kind of confirms that there is no one way, there are no tools or like practices or methods or you know because with social media I feel like especially with um Gen Y and whatever comes after that the, the really young ones <laughs> they see things that say like oh so you want to be a witch well you need an altar well you need you know these you need a chalice you need these types of crystals blah 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 and like on it goes and I think it's it's always kind of implied that it's whatever works but people take it very literally and so I wonder like what would your advice be to people listening on where to begin with their completely DIY own path that's like more anarchic in in essence like what what might help kick off this for them 
I really appreciate that question because it, it helps me answer that question more for myself. I would say pay attention to expressions, personas, works of art, writings that arouse something incredibly elevated in you, that direct your passions, that command your passions in a way that nothing else does. And that can mean any number of things. And remember, all spirituality means, at least in my definition, is extra physicality. And if you believe, as I do, that we participate in an extra physical dimension of life, call it whatever you will, call it infinite intelligence, higher energies, God, cosmic laws, ESP, intuition, but whatever you call it, anything that summons you to a heightened sense of passion, anything that helps you formulate an aim and a wish and to dedicate yourself to it with a feeling of absolute totality is a spiritual act. And if that comes to you when you're watching a movie, that's spiritual. If that comes to you when you're reading an essay or a book by somebody that you love or a song, that's spiritual. Or for that matter, if it comes to you in a very ordinary, familiar, congregational setting, pay attention to that and let no one dictate to you where you should locate that feeling. There are no boundaries. There are no boundaries. No one controls that spiritual currency in your life. It's yours. It's exquisitely your own. It's exquisitely voluntary. It's exquisitely personal. So wherever you feel that sense of heightened passion and you feel a sense of a almost unified psychical and physical experience, that's, I think, a place where you can start doing any kind of, of spiritual work, including self-examination, including efforts at mental causation and self-creativity. Mm. And it sounds like in your experience, like if I may say so, that those experiences of heightened passion and unification were really a portal into manifestation or, or selection, as you would say, like those moments bring forth something to you. I believe so. I believe so. I think when a person has an absolute definitive idea of what he or she wants in life, and you feel these moments of a kind of inner solidity, a unity. You're not distracted. And you start to feel like there's this disillusion of separation between self and thought and physical surroundings. I think those are moments where if you concentrate on that which is desired, you may have extraordinary results. There also might be something, and look, I'm experimenting with this. There might be something that also rescues us from negative results because I've had experiences where I've had my mind set on something very specific as we all have had, and I didn't get it. And I was later really glad I didn't get it, but I got something else that completely fit the bill of what I was after. And I mean completely or surpassed it. Something rescued me there. And I ask myself and your listeners not to be too quick to answer this question, but, you know, what rescued me? What rescued me? Something rescued me. And I'm, I'm experimenting with that at the moment as well. That's an amazing question to end on. And I'm excited to go and ponder that myself and for everyone else too. And Mitch Horowitz, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. A real pleasure. Thank you. 
Well, if that interview wasn't the biggest permission slip in the universe, I don't know what is. From the perspective of anarchic magic, the imagination is God. Our favorite people and places and even movies are sacred, and spontaneity is the ultimate portal to all that the divine has to offer. Do you know what that means? It means if you agree, you're a witch. Or maybe you're not. Maybe you are, but you'd like to come up with your own unique name for yourself. Or none. After all, Mitch recommends that if you resonate with anarchic magic, you should ditch that term and invent your own. And maybe you think all this is very interesting, but you've already found your worldview and your practices and they're working well. And if so, lucky you. Either way, I think it's obvious that at the root of anarchic magic is the principle of self-empowerment of testing and learning rather than blindly subscribing to something a priori. And that principle can, and probably should, be applied to all areas of our lives, public and private. What would you do if you were never told what to do? How would you mold your morals, your beliefs? How would you show up in the world every single day? And how would you believe in what you hold to be true? Think about it. And if you don't know, all the more reason to start truly seeking. As Mitch himself said in a tweet recently, the highest form of faith is critical in nature. Did you like this episode of Beyond Belief? Let us know by rating, reviewing and or subscribing to the podcast. And if you want to shoot the spiritual shit, you can send me a DM on Instagram at jericho.mandibur. Beyond Belief is a Wonder Media Network production recorded on Tongva land and edited and produced by Liz Smith with the support of Edie Allard. Wonder Media Network is a women-led podcasting company dedicated to uplifting underrepresented voices based in New York City.